This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Defined by grace, 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 community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It's great to be able to be together and, and worship and truly say that God is worthy of this worship. You know, we've been talking through uh, this. We've been going through this series, the most famous sermon Jesus ever preached. And really everything in that sermon that Jesus preached is really everything it means to live a life of worship. So we don't have to just find a song to get us to get us in the right spirit so that maybe on Sunday we're worshipful. This sermon, this Sermon on the Mount, this way of living in God's kingdom, this is a way to live a worshipful life. There's a way in which our lives should be the very sacrifice. Our lives should be lived in such a way that says they worship something. That that person has something else guiding them. There's a guiding principle. They, They live a life in such a way that they want to bring glory elsewhere, not to themselves, not to any other human. How do we live our lives in such a way that says, God, I'm worshiping you in every aspect of my life? And so we've walked through. Jesus lays out so many different ways in which we live lives that are worshipful. What it means to acknowledge our brokenness, what it means to live lives of mercy, what it means to seek after hunger and thirst after righteousness, all of these things, we've walked through uh, what it means to solve, uh, to problem solve and to be peacemakers and all of these different things that Jesus brings us through. Then a couple of weeks ago, I talked about uh, something that Jesus laid out that seemed like something almost off the wall. Because he began to talk about behavior, but he never left it at just behavior. Because a lot of times we'll think that the way that I'm worshipful is to do the right stuff. Right? I'm worshipful if I do the right things. Or I'm worshipful as long as I don't do the wrong things, the bad things. And it's not less than that, right? Our our behavior, our conduct, the way in which we comport ourselves does give a picture of the one that we follow, right? So so there's no question that we need to be concerned about behavior and conduct and the way that we act and what we do and what we say. But Jesus took us to a different level. He didn't just say, hey, don't murder. He went back to the Ten Commandments and said, you know not to murder, but I say to you that there's a kind of anger that you can have that makes you just as guilty as a murderer on a heart level. In other words, there's a heart issue that precedes the behavior. And if you don't get down to the heart issue first, then good behavior will just feel like this exhausting task list that you can't wait to stop doing. Because it's not coming from this changed heart, right? So when Jesus talked about the kind of anger that gives rise to murder, he's trying to show us it's not just the action, but it's the misdirected desire that governs the action. It's never just the action. And it's easy And when we grow up in different church forms and church backgrounds and the ways in which we want to serve God, we can really kind of get to a point where Hey, have I done the right thing or the wrong things? If I've made sure I can't find anything in my record that shows I did this, this, or that, I got it good with God. God cares about that, but God is more saying, and Jesus is saying, it's not enough to just have the right behaviors. It's vitally important that the heart condition that precipitates those behaviors is is correct, is right. And so he basically says, it's not just what you do that's sinfully damaging to yourself and possibly others. Those things are true. There are things you can do that's, that's harmful to you and things you can do that's harmful to others. Sin always harms more than just you. Sin will always harm more than just you. And you rarely think about all of the people that it could harm. But it's not just that. It's, it's, it's not just what you do. It's why you do the sinfully damaging things that matters. And Jesus is basically saying, If you can break down your why I do, you will affect what I do. If you can break down why you do what you do, you will effectively identify and move away from 
the things that you do that you know are unpleasing, that you know are sinful, that you know bring shame, that bring pain. And so Jesus moved us from the issue of murder and anger. He moves us into a topic, a subject that is always rife with emotion and frustration and heavy questions. Because he walks into this topic that everybody on some level can connect to, either because of your own lives or because of family members and people that we're close to. We can all connect with this on some level. So I'm going to read it for you. Matthew 5, uh, beginning in verse 27. Jesus says this. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I know whenever you talk through, whenever you go through a topic that involves sex and sexual sin, whenever you talk through those things as a church, all kinds of emotions can be elicited. I think depending on people's life, people are going to go, okay, wait a minute, where is this going to go? Um, uh, sometimes these topics can bring about a, a degree of shame or a degree of fear or a or, or degree of or, or is, is attack coming. And all I'm going to say is, let's just hear Jesus out here. I actually believe there's some really good news in what Jesus breaks down here for us. Some really, really good news. So think about how Jesus starts out. He starts out by talking about something that, remember his audience now, he's got all of these Jewish leaders and they all are there listening. They've been hearing the things that Jesus has said. And he starts out by talking about something that they are very familiar with. They know the 10 commandments. He says, you have heard not to commit adultery. Now, what is adultery here? In the Old Testament world, which is what they're uh, understanding, this is quite specifically sex outside of married people having sex outside of their marriage. Very, it was very understood. You can actually look in the Old Testament. You was, there were very harsh consequences when people within the community of God uh, committed adultery, either the person who's married who commits adultery with a person who's not, or the unmarried person who uh, uh, engages in sexual activity with a married person. Those were all considered adultery. And back in the Old Testament, it was punishable by death. There's some harsh things that you see because back then you see just how important uh, this union is and, and, and was. And so Jesus knows they know this. He's like, okay, you guys understand Old Testament uh, marital ethics, right? You understand, you guys know the law. You're not supposed to do that. He says, but it's more than just that. And I'm going to submit to you that this is more than just don't cheat on your spouse, go away. This Old Testament sexual ethic simply meant this, sex within your marriage should be exclusive. It should be exclusive. Now, I know that there is a, a we get to kind of create whatever ethics we want. We do, we have that luxury, not necessarily in God's economy, but in the world, we can. And oftentimes, we do, for varying reasons. You get to a place where uh, there's something that you want and you will justify why it is that you need it or want it, and we will do it. There are people who are in uh, marriages that decide, hey, I, I think I want to do an open marriage because I've decided that there are some other things that I think that I want. And if I can convince you that you may want them, then let's do this. Now, if you look at the numbers on this, some of the, some of the worst unhappy stories you find come out of people on the back end of this. There's an incredible psychological study that's been done to show just how much pain ends up coming out of people within these kind of polyamorous relationships. And it's not because people need to be shamed into it. What God is showing, what Jesus shows us is we were never designed for that. We were never, we were designed for committed, exclusive intimacy. We were designed for committed, exclusive intimacy. And so that is the Old Testament sexual ethic, right, that Jesus is uh, uh, ascribing or subscribing to here. And this is what he is speaking to them. He understands, they understand the same thing, right? 
In, 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 the, in the Hebrew scriptures, marriage always equaled this covenant, this binding agreement. It's the reason why when you do, when you're at a wedding or you participate in a wedding, it's the reason why people take vows for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health. Why are those vows being made? Now, today they're almost ceremonial and people kind of just look at it as like something I need to bypass so I can get that kiss and be out. But this is actually something that was always meant to be taken seriously. Because ultimately in a marriage, these are not just fun things, perfunctory things we just do because this is what you do when you get married. You take vows in front of people because ultimately you want them to be able to hold you accountable for the vows that you make. The reason why you do that is because you are saying to everyone, my love for this person is not circumstantial. My love for this person is not based on just feelings. My love for this person, my commitment to this person, my desire to marry this person is built on a mutual promise. I think the reason why Jesus is getting ready to walk us through these next few uh, scriptures over the next couple of weeks Think about it here. We're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about sex. And then next week, he's going to talk about marriage and divorce. And then the next week after that, he's going to talk about oaths and promises. Why? Because these are things that are supposed to be working together. We were meant to be relationally intimate, not rooted in pure sexual desire. So when you look at what Jesus says here, they are understanding this. Hey, you guys know not to commit adultery. But I want to tell you that the, the sin beneath the sin is the thing that you have to check. The sin beneath the sin. At best, many of us are really good at identifying kind of the surface sin. Hey, I, 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 I responded in this way. I shouldn't have done it. I'm sorry. But when you start doing real hard work, you get into the, why did I respond that way? I know I shouldn't have made that decision. I'm sorry. That doesn't actually make you feel much better if you're the one that's being hurt, right? Because what you want to know is, okay, I get that you're sorry, but if you're just sorry because this happened, then it's obvious to me that you're just sorry that you got caught or you're sorry about the consequences. But I want to know that the sin beneath the sin is something that you're dealing with because that's when real heart work begins. That's when real reconciliation begins. That's what real repentance looks like. So if we don't know how to identify the sin beneath the sin, we actually will constantly be hurting ourselves and other people. Here, when Jesus starts to point this out, he's pointing out something here. He says, when, when, when he identifies this with, his, with, with the uh, Jewish leaders and he starts out saying, don't commit adultery, then he says, okay, so you know you shouldn't do that, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now we gotta talk about what is lust. What is lust? Because it's, it's used in a lot of different ways and it's applied a lot of different ways. As a matter of fact, in the, in the New Testament, lust, the word, the Greek word for lust is translated a number of different ways depending on the context. It's not just one thing. And in some ways, lust, the word lust, is actually not a bad thing either. I'll show you that in a minute. But I'm gonna say this, lust is not just mere sexual attraction. That's important. Lust is not sexual attraction, right? Attraction itself is natural. Attraction is something God gave. That's, that's, oh, it's, it's normal, right? It's, uh, attraction by itself isn't necessarily lust. What lust is, is rooted in desire. It's not just attraction. You see something, oh man, that's, that's interesting, or anything, any item, that's interesting, but something about that says, I need to have that item. You can walk in window shop and be like, oh yeah, look at that and keep it moving. But you can see something and go, okay, I desire that. What I'm going to do, I'm going to reach for my checkbook. I'm going to, who uses the checkbook? I'm going to reach for my, <laughs> reach for my uh, debit card or I'm going to use my cash app or I'm going to do whatever it is that I have to do in a contextually appropriate way. And I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to this place. I'm going to take steps. I'm going to take action steps to, to possess this thing that I desire. That is lust. There are good ways and bad ways. But that is lust. In other words, lust is desire with a plan. Lust is desire with a plan. Because desire always makes a plan. So, so they go together. 
It's, it's impossible to desire something and not actually, even if it's just a mental plan of, I want that. And if certain things happen, I will get that. So you may not have it. You may not have the resources at your disposal to go get it right now. But you have this heart posture that says, I desire that. And given the right time and opportunity, I will possess that. Lust is desire with a plan. And so when Jesus says, uh, he, he starts telling them, if you lust after a woman in your heart, there's something about this desire then that is bad. Now, let me tell you, there's several places in the, in the New Testament where this word is translated a bunch of different ways. This word, epithubia, is this word that it, it means a long passion. There's a passion that comes alongside this, this attraction. Something attracts you. There's this passion now that says, I need to possess this. I need to have this. And so as soon as the plan can come together, I will enact and make this thing manifest in my life. So, epithumia, how is it translated? In some places in the New Testament, it's translated greed. So, so what does that show you? There's a degree to which this kind of lust is not just desire, it's over-desire. It's going beyond something that you, there's a, there's a desire for something that you really shouldn't have. And so it takes you over. Something that I shouldn't have, someone that I shouldn't have. And so this desire wells up and it becomes this over the top. Alongside with something that might look attractive, there is a passion that sets in that says, whatever I have to do, whatever comes, if the right time hits, I'm getting that. Sometimes it's translated desire. Another way that it's translated is covet. As a matter of fact, the majority of, you know, it was interesting when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, roughly in like 200, 250 BC, the majority, I was looking at one commentator, the majority of Hebrews, Jews during that time, spoke more Greek than Hebrew. So they translated it into Greek. And if you look at the way that the word uh, lust is translated, it's almost the same word as covet. Because the idea was not just seeing that looks nice, but I want that for myself. When you covet something, you want it for yourself. It's not the same as just going, that looks really nice. Man, that is really pretty. No, it's, they have that. I need to have that. They have that. Why don't I have that? They have that. I deserve that. And so a plan, albeit subtle or sometimes more in your face, begins to hatch. So in this context, in the way that Jesus is using it, lust is a, a longing, a craving, a desire for something that is forbidden or evil. It's a longing and a craving for something that is forbidden or evil. Now, as I said, lust is not always bad. That same word, epithumia, that was, uh, that's translated into lust is also used in other places. If you remember, when Jesus is at the Last Supper with his disciples, the scriptures in Luke 22 says Jesus had eager desire to eat with his disciples. That word eager is the word lust. It's the same word. He had this bur burgeoning desire to have this meal with them. It's not bad on its own, right? That kind of desire is good. Paul in Philippians, he had this desire to be with Christ. Philippians 1, 23. Again, Paul in, Thessalon in Thessalon 1 Thessalonians 2, he says he had a desire to see the saints in Thessalonica again. That same word desire is the word we translate lust. See, you can really desire and hatch a plan for the right things, and that kind of lust isn't bad. That kind of desire isn't bad. But it's when we begin to desire and make a plan for the wrong things that brings every other form of sin. So you realize if you don't check your desires, you are capable of any number of dangerous, damaging sin. I am capable of any number of dangerous and damaging sin. It's one of the reasons why it's so important that I understand how my own heart works. I need to, when's the last time that you did kind of a desire inventory? What do you desire and why? That's a real, I mean, honestly, it can be the most, seemingly the most innocuous thing. Think about something that you want. 
Think about something you're planning for and just ask yourself the question, why? What is it that roots this desire? Think about things that maybe have occurred that have, that have caused pain, relationship issues, whatever. Think about times where maybe you or someone else has done something to hurt you or you stepped outside or you did something. It's not enough to be like, I feel so bad that that, that happened. I, I feel so bad that I did that. The bigger question has got to be, what was I desiring and why? What was I desiring really and why? I promise you, when you are prone to do that kind of inventory, you become a person that is incredibly trustworthy and people are able to build real relationship and people can build what they call genuine intimacy. But again, this, this word lust in a bad sense, the word that Jesus uses here, the ways in which he uses it, it means canupescence, uh, uh, the strong sexual desire to possess and to consume. So if we combine all of these, there's this greedy intent to possess them and consume them. It's not just attraction. It's sexual desire with a plan of action. So how, how might this work just in, in regular life? You see somebody that's attractive, that's normal, it's what follows, that determines if it's lust though. So you see someone that's attractive. Now, Here's normally how this can happen. If you start to talk to this person with the hopes of building something more and, and with hopes of maybe lowering their defense to get them to feel comfortable enough to deepen this new attraction. And then maybe numbers or exchange. I know that's data because a lot of these folks, they just exchange IG handles now. So maybe you just exchange Instagram handles or what have you. And now you begin to talk and you begin to build a, an online relationship and an online conversation happens. And guess what happens next? Plans get made. All of those steps along the way, that's where the lust is. The lust didn't, doesn't happen when once the plan gets hatched and all of a sudden people are able to manifest that plan. All of a sudden, next thing you know, you're in a car fully aware of what you've chosen to do. But all of this is lustful intent. Do you see the difference between the behavior and the rooting heart posture? Because that's what Jesus cares about. Even if you make the drive and you stop there and go, I can't believe I'm doing this. I'm turning around. Awesome. Praise God. But you now got to stop and go, what was it that I desired here and why? This is what Jesus is trying to get all of us to do, to start doing this deep heart work. We said it before. The heart of every matter truly is the matter of the heart. So it can never just end with good behavioral to-dos and don'ts, right? It's got to deal with something on this deep heart level. So you've got this uh, situation and you see what adultery is. It is the action of unfaithfulness, but lust is the heart of unfaithfulness. Adultery is the action of unfaithfulness. Lust is the heart of unfaithfulness. And here's what lustful intent does within marriages and relationships. Lustful intent strips people of their humanity. Because they are no longer a person. They're a commodity. I want something. I can't truly want all of you as a person, specifically if I'm committed elsewhere. I, there's something else that I want that I'm not getting. So if I can just get this little piece here, this is going to suffice. This will satiate whatever it is that I feel like I need. I'm not looking for all of you in any kind of committed sense. I just need this. You know what I'm doing? I'm commodifying you. I'm just turning you into yet another resource that maybe I get to have for myself. And so for a married person, the majority of, of which, is, you know, if you look at the audience that Jesus is talking to, many of them were members of the Sanhedrin. And most commentators will say that you could not be a part of these religious leaders if you were not married. Some of the reasons why a lot of people think and assume that Paul may have been married at one point. It's a different sermon. So, so you've got a lot of people here that are married. So Jesus is talking to married folks. So for a married person, Lust is the misdirected sexual desire for someone outside of their marriage, okay? So we got it. This is lust in this context. But I think a question can often come up, and I think it comes up today a lot for many folks and go, well, listen, <clears throat> I mean, lust is pretty much a harmless, it's internal. It's in, it's in the mind. So, so what is the big deal? Why would you get, why can't we just spend more of our focus on the bad behaviors? 
I can't read people's minds. I can't get into your heart. I don't know what's going on there. So why not? Why won't we cover our bases well if we just say, don't do these things? Can't that just be enough? The problem with that really quickly is if, if all you do is give people do's and don'ts and you never get to the heart issue, they will find other things that aren't covered in the do's and don'ts because the heart issue is still there. People are very creative. We always have been. So if you give me a list, great. You just told me all the things that I can avoid or you told me all the things that I don't have to worry about. And now you've told me all the things I can do because it's not on the list. But if you get to the heart issue, everything is covered. I don't have to create a long, exhaustive list of what you should and shouldn't do. I can tell you what you should and shouldn't feel. I can tell you what you should and should not be moving toward and what you should not be giving your energy to. But it's really easy to stop and go, no, no. It's all in my head, right? It's no harm, no foul, right? So let me tell you what a lust-corrupted heart will do to all of us. A lust-corrupted heart, it will harm you and it will harm others. We ought not take lust lightly. It will harm you and it will harm others. How? Well, I would say this. The first way that a lust-corrupted heart will harm you and others will harm us, your lust will train you to prefer fantasy over reality. Your lust will train you to prefer a fantasy over a reality. You will prefer lies over the truth. You will be, specifically, if you are in a committed marriage and you are in a situation where maybe, it, and I'll talk about this in a minute, but there are issues that come up and issues that start to make it really difficult within the marriage and there's work that needs to be done, you get so exhausted and you begin to think, you know what, this is just too much. It will be a lot easier if I was just able to do this. It will just be a lot easier to handle certain things if I could just go and do that. And lust will take you there. It can take any of us there. If you start to give in in that way, if your mindset goes there, what you do is you construct a fantasy. It must be like this over there, and I won't have to deal with this in that way. I prefer the fantasy over the reality, this commitment that I have and the work that I need to do. So it trains you to prefer fantasy over reality. Here's what it also does all at the same time. Lust drives us into a me-centered prison a me-centered prison. C.S. Lewis addressed this, uh, these first two ideas together. Here's what he said. I put this quote down because I thought it was so telling. He said, this is what he says about lust. He says, for me, the real evil of lust would be that, would be that it takes an appetite, which in lawful use, meaning uh, in marriage, it leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct in his own personality. He would get to a place where uh, his, uh, uh, he would think about not just himself, but others. And the problem is he takes that good, right, lawful, or marital uh, commitment, and he turns it backwards. It sends the man back into the prison of himself. And listen to what he says. He gets to stay there, keeping a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman. For the harem is always accessible. The harem is always subservient. The harem never calls for any sacrifices or adjustments. The harem can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no real woman can ever rival. And among those shadowy brides, he is always adored. He's always the perfect lover. No demand is ever made on his unselfishness. No mortification ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. What he shows here is that what lust does is it really does become a very convenient way to worship ourselves and to love ourselves. Every sin is a function of self-worship. We've brought this out for years. This is something we all know in our own lives. Every sin in which we engage is a function of self-worship. 
I love myself so much that I believe I'm entitled to X, Y, or Z. I will do what I have to do to get X, Y, or Z. And whoever it harms, whoever it hurts, it does not matter in the moment because I love me. I love me. So I'm going to do what I need to do to love myself. And so in this, what C.S. Lewis brings up is interesting. And this goes either way. I think some people can look at this and go, please don't, Please don't get caught up on the pronouns here and think, well, only men can be lustful because it only says men here. I always think that's, there are some people who take that lazy approach. There's a reason why he's addressing men here because the only people in the audience there are men, these male leaders. They were the only ones who were allowed to be. Further, it wasn't like women could do anything about it if their husbands were the ones cheating. It was men who had the power to be able to do that. So he's talking to the, the folks who, are, who have the levers of power there. That's why. So don't get caught up on that. This goes both ways. And so when that happens, when, 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 when those first two things that we said happens, right, I, I start to believe into a fantasy. I start preferring a fantasy over reality. And then it drives me into this me-centered prison. When those things come together, this third thing is inevitable. Your lust distorts your perception of other people. Your lust will completely pervert and distort your perception of other people. What do I mean? Once you get to a place where you're like, I've got all these imaginary spouses, these imaginary lovers in my head. Now I'm just looking. Whoever I can see that seems to have a little piece of that, there's one right there. Whoever, and maybe I'm not even looking. You realize a lot of times these don't even think things that you have to intentionally look for. It's just a, a, a something that is being nursed on a deep heart level. I really don't like that. I can't get this at home. And if only I had a person that could do this, or if only I had a person that would do that without doing the hard work of having real conversation and working through that together. When you don't do that, when that communication isn't there, then you start nursing all of these other lusts. And maybe for reasons that are understandable, I'm hurt or certain things aren't happening and I'm upset or there's something that I need. That may be true. I don't do the work to bring this to the table. Now I'm nursing all of these things and they start turning into these pet baby lusts. And I may, not even, I may not even realize that they're happening at the time until somebody unwittingly just says that right thing that day. Until somebody unwittingly just does that really nice gesture that day. And that's on the good end. Or this is something that just the nature of people work. Listen, if you are in a vulnerable place, there are people that can sniff that out. There are people who can tell, and you, you, you look like you're not, you're not happy, and, and begin to engage in ways that might seem very innocent, but because that vulnerability is there, and because that harem of invisible spouses is in your head, all of the things that they seem to do, like that invisible spouse that you've been looking at, all of a sudden you're like, why not? What happens is the moment you start walking into that, specifically with sexual desire, lust reduces people to sexual objects. That is something that is very common. It always has been, and it's very common in our culture today as well. Lust reduces people to sexual objects. Your greatest value to me, your greatest currency to me, is, is, is your sexual viability and your ability to be attractive to me. That's the greatest currency for, and we've told people specifically and disproportionately so with women. We've always told women, your greatest value is your beauty. You can say all you want. No, that's not true. That's not true. Look at the way culture works. Let's make it just super easy. Take any movie that you want a leading person. If it's a leading man, it really doesn't matter how old he is. Sean Connery was crusty as all get out. He was getting leading roles. And he doesn't have to just be an old grandfather. You could be 70 years old, be a leading man. And guess what? You've got the love of your life. You see some 30-year-old, 25-year-old, you know, love of your life interest. With women, the moment they get to a place where there's almost a cutoff point, and now they only get to play the doting mother, the grandmother, the, 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 the uh, cantankerous neighbor. We've always told women your beauty is the most important thing. And we practice, it, practice that as such. And so we often reduce 
each other. It happens to men too, but disproportionately so with women, we reduce people to sexual objects. We reduce them to bodies and body parts. And you know what happens when we do that? We ignore the image of God in each other. When I've reduced you to just what you or your body can do for me, I am completely overlooking the image of God in you. And I'm definitely not acting like an image bearer. I'm actually blaspheming the very image of God when I function in that way. Here's what else, here's what else happens. When I am lusting and I want you in a desire, in, a, in, a, in an illicit, desirous way, fully formed people become flattened out. What I mean by that is, Whatever makes you this complex, nuanced human being that needs to be fully known, I don't want to know all of that. There's one or two or three things about you that I want to know. That's why I'm here. And so your fullness as a human being, the fullness of who you are becomes flattened, distilled down to two or three things that only I care about. It's the reason why there are people that will, they'll fall into this I really just wanted to feel this and I wanted to feel that. And they'll get into the, they'll hope that there'll be a relationship and you find out that person you're with was never here for a relationship. They were just here for these couple things. They got it. Godspeed. And meanwhile, you're there holding going, but wait, I, I, I thought that you were wanting to see me fully. I thought that you wanted to know me fully. I thought that you wanted the fullness of who I am. No, that, sis, that's not what I was here, bro. That's not what I was here. I, I, I was here because it, you uh, provided a service and, 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 and I was able to partake of that service and I'm thankful, thank you. And that's it. And then you're left feeling this emptiness. You're left longing. Because what lust does is it bypasses the inner beauty. It, it, it minimizes people's hopes. It minimizes people's dreams. You know what else it does? Lust robs people of their identity. What do I mean? Lust will rob people of their identity. When you, when, if you were to stop, talk to, at least when I'm talking to men about this, I've talked to, I think it's true for both, but if you were to stop and go, man, I, I, I'm thinking about doing X, Y, and Z, or I'm thinking about starting this relationship, or, or let's say that you are someone that is single and this person is married and you know there's issues or whatever, and you begin to enter in hoping for something to happen, or maybe not formally saying it, but just kind of not stopping it, and those things start to happen. And here's what, 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 what occurs. Their identity, as all a number of things, gets robbed. You talk to somebody and you want them just for a few things, their identity as a son or a daughter gets robbed. Their identity as a sister or a brother gets robbed. Their identity as a mother or a father gets robbed. Their identity as a husband or a wife gets robbed. Lust will make you indifferent to that person's unique gifts, their unique experience, their unique voice. You know what it does instead? It demands that that person serve your agenda. You might have all these wonderful things about you. You know, you'll hear people that go out, hang out. I get it. It's, 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 it's normal. People go out, they meet somebody, just be whatever for that night and that's it. And then keep it moving. There's a whole person under there that he have no idea about. There's a whole thing. There's a whole list of maybe baggage that someone's carrying. And this is something that, hey, I'm not here for the baggage. I'm just here for this. And so I really, and here's the thing. We start, we don't want to make each other feel bad. If I know that I have a lot of baggage and issues and I need fullness and genuine intimacy, but I don't want to push you away, then I'm just not going to bring that up. I'm going to hold it to myself because I don't want to be alone and I don't want to feel abandoned. So I'm going to abrogate myself. I'm going to bury the things about me that make me fully me. I'm going to bury that because I don't want you to run. And we'll be okay with that. The person, when we are acting on our lust, that person gets eclipsed by our selfishness who that person is and where they are and all of the things that makes them who they are, all of the things, all of the pain that maybe brought them to this place, all of that gets eclipsed with lust. There was a psychologist who wrote about the effects um, of pornography in this respect. That's a 
another issue that we talk about differently, but there's some similarities here because it's not necessarily, I think sometimes people have taken pornography and when they talk about it, we're almost, we need to be very specific when we talk about it because there's so many issues that are harmful. But the lust that happens with pornography is something different. The lust that happens with pornography is not just, I lust after that person on the screen and I want them. You ain't ever gonna meet them. There's not even a plan hatched on how to go meet them or find them. This is not that. Here's what it does. It actually makes you lust after more imaginary things. And so now you've got all of these lusts that are there and you just can't wait to meet one person that can do two or three of those things. Because now you have nursed new lusts. You've nursed new desires, unhealthy, illicit desires, and you want to act them out with different people that you can just commodify. All right, you, you, you seem like you can do this. Great. I would love to be able to do that there. Oh, I remember seeing that. They look like somebody that would be perfect for that. Let's go. And so what this psychologist said is that, uh, number one, uh, you see this, this effect that starts to hit where people are vicariously living out a fantasy with the hopes of recreating that fantasy. It's not a desire for relational intimacy. It's just exclusively a desire for sexual chemistry. Y'all, this is really what we are told. This is how the culture kind of sells sex is the whole goal is just to have, to, 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 to reach a place of sexual chemistry, completely devoid of relational intimacy. And so what pornography does is it starts to marry lust with voyeurism. It's like, I, I've got these desires that I want to be able to act out. And so what, what the psychologist said is that people who are engaged in this on these high levels and, and regularly engaged, uh, they have found, uh, especially among men, but also among some women, but um, a deep fear of intimacy occurs for people who kind of act out their lust, their fantasy lust this way. A deep fear of intimacy. Why? Because the majority of my sexual attention has been rooted in nothing but sexual chemistry and not any form of relational intimacy. I don't know anything else. And so then when they do get into any kind of a sexual relationship, all they know is sexual chemistry. They don't know anything else about relational intimacy. And sometimes they don't even know to look for relational intimacy. The other thing the psychologist said is that people begin to engage in these acts as an act of validation. Sex becomes a way to feel better about yourself. So after these three points that we brought, right? The first is uh, trains you to prefer fantasy over reality. And then it drives you into a me-centered prison. And then it distorts your perception of others. When you bring those things together, here's in the context of marriage, lust then, like this, always causes damage to a marriage. I want a fantasy over reality. The reality is that a marriage rooted in intimacy means a commitment to regularly learning and relearning each other. Do you know that in the, the Hebrew Bible, the way that they, uh, the Hebrew word for sex is actually the word that we use for no. I was just, and he knew her, right? Because sex was always meant to be more than just chemistry, y'all. Sex was meant to be something that's deeply relationally intimate. A way in which you are completely known, fully seen, fully heard. And so when you think about that, the marriage, how marriage is rooted in intimacy, it means a commitment to always learning and relearning. Why? Because we are always committed to knowing each other. So that means when there are breakdowns in communication, breakdowns in knowing each other, what do you do? Do you, do you, do you re-engage each other as a commitment to, to protecting and pursuing relational intimacy? I hope so. But here's the thing, regularly trying to learn and relearn that takes work and it takes two people. And so you could be in a situation where you're like, well, I, I want to re-engage and, and I want to know you and I want to re-know you and re-learn you, but it takes two. And sometimes people get exhausted or someone gets exhausted or, or someone just goes, honestly, some people are like, well, I realize I might be holding 80% of the issue here. And that means I'm going to have to do a lot more work. And I don't really know if I want to do all of that work. It just feels like it'll be easier for me to just try to start afresh elsewhere. And that's what happens. It's usually one who just doesn't want to do some of the heavier lifting 
Sometimes it's because of pride. Sometimes it's because when you have to do that kind of work, you have to stand in front of a mirror and be honest about these things that aren't working right. I've got to stop and admit the things that in terms of intimacy aren't connecting right. Many who lust after someone outside of their marriage, they do so because, as I said, they see an affair as the easier route to feeling known. I just want to feel known. I just want to feel seen. But what lust does, it, we, we start to get to a place where we start believing it's, it's just too much work to be known by my spouse. It's too much work to try and know them again. So I start believing the fantasy that maybe I can be fully known or at least more known elsewhere. And that fantasy becomes sex will make me more known. But as we've seen, sex was designed to be most fulfilling as a result of being intimately known within the context of a committed covenant. It was designed for us to be most fulfilled in being fully intimately known within the context of commitment and covenant. Lust wants to bypass committed intimacy. Lust wants to jump right to sexual chemistry and desire. And so many marriages suffer because one spouse chooses to engage the fantasy, driven away by their lust, and sometimes, and oftentimes, can cause irreparable damage to their marriage. So listen, I say this all the time, even in premarital counseling, it is not enough to promise that you'll never cheat on your spouse. Everybody, when they take vows, promises that. It's not enough to just promise that you, that you will, I will, I promise to forsake all others. That's a vital promise and we need to do that. But it's not enough to say and promise you'll never cheat. You have to promise that you will always pursue each other's heart. I promise that I will always pursue knowing you. I promise that I will always make myself known by you. I promise that even when there are things, the ways in which I'm prone to hide and or pretend, I promise to make myself fully known to the degree that I can. I will make myself fully known to you. In other words, I'm fully allowing myself to be seen. But when we fail to do this, our lust affects more than just us. Lust will affect a husband's view of his wife. Lust will affect a wife's view of her husband. Further, lust that leads to adultery Here's the big thing I don't think we think about. Communicate something about the spouse that's being cheated on as well. That's what I mean. If you cheat on your spouse with someone, you're not only disrespecting and robbing that spouse of their identity, right? Their identity as your spouse. You are actually inviting someone else to rob that identity from that spouse. You're inviting someone else to rob them of what it is that makes them who they are to you. So when you you begin to say, like, I know that this thing is really disrespectful to my wife and it's really, I'm completely overlooking who she is to me, but I'm going to invite somebody else in to do that. So sometimes we could be like, you know, my problem isn't with, you know, that person that they cheated with. I mean, yeah, my problem shouldn't be with the person that they cheated with. It should just be with you. Well, God has a problem with the person that he cheated with. I know that's conventional wisdom to say, but God has a problem with that. And part of it is because they are taking part in mutually disrespecting and mutually robbing and mutually sinning against. So when we think through kind of what this looks like and what it means to say that uh, robbing someone and inviting someone to do that robbery, you, you invite someone else to disrespect your spouse. And of course, they will, they'll have no problem with that. The person who's just there to be able to get the one or two things that they want, they're not going to have a problem with, they're going to be like, that has nothing to do with me. Whatever you're doing with them is on you. I don't care about that. I just care about you. And yet you are together joining in because they're like, I'm not married to them. But when you commit adultery, you give someone else permission to share in robbing your spouse of their dignity, of their hopes, and of their dreams. And finally, when you look at uh, the, the end of this, and Jesus says in verses 29 and 30, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. This is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Now, no, I do not think that Jesus is saying physically maim yourself. 
There are some small sects of groups in the history that used to do some crazy things, and that is not what he's saying. Jesus is making usage of hyperbole to drive home a really, really heavy part. And this is what he's saying. Number one, the things that cause you to sexually desire with a plan need to be treated with the highest sense of urgency. Extremes, like like excising body parts, they're used by Jesus to illustrate just how serious your heart and your mind actually are. You cannot be ruled by mere sexual desire because it will harm you and it will harm others. Constantly what the scriptures are trying to show us is, y'all, we were not made just for mere sexual transactions. We were not made to be exclusively sexually transactional people. We were created for relational intimacy. Whether you're single or you're married, having the goal of committed relational intimacy will guard your heart from lustful intent. That's how you guard your heart against lustful intent, having a deep desire for relational intimacy first. And if you're married, relational intimacy is always the primary goal. So that means if you're hurt by your spouse, you tell them. You communicate what has occurred. If you've hurt your spouse, you do the work to repair. If you don't, you're making it incredibly hard on their ability to pursue relational intimacy with you. And when relational intimacy is broken, people become more vulnerable. And in those cases, in those cases, people who get in affairs, some of them don't even do it for sexual reasons per se. They do it because they feel so abandoned by the other spouse who refuses to do the work of repairing relational intimacy. And then they find it elsewhere. Not an excuse. They are still responsible for their actions, but they didn't get to that point alone. And so it's vitally important that we are always saying, I'm committed to relational intimacy. If I'm married, I'm committed to relational intimacy. If I'm single and I want to be married or I want to be with people, I want to know how do I identify whether or not they are people who are focused on relational intimacy and not just sexual transaction. And y'all, it's very hard now. It's always been hard. But as I talk to some of the single folk in this church, it ain't easy out here. Because there are a lot of people who honestly are thinking, we all are here for transactions, right? We have apps that make the transaction really, really easy. I know someone who would go, he lives in this one city, he does really well for himself, and he's just like, hey, he had mentioned this one time in a group, and he said, whenever I know that I just want some attention, I want to meet a woman, I'll go into, he does really well financially, so he'll go into a poor area, turn on his Tinder profile with all of the wealthy trappings he can put on, and just have people just filing in left and right, left and right, left and right. Do what he wants and then leaves. Y'all, people are just rooted in just transactional sexual relationships. That's that's, this isn't like exceptional. This is kind of the norm. Am I, single people, am I wrong? This is, what, this is what happens. So on some level, you have got to get to a place where you stop and go, how do I identify, what, what, are, the, what are the hallmarks of somebody who, who genuinely desires relational intimacy? And how do I make sure that I'm not rooted in just sexual transaction by myself? So I'm gonna tell you, What do we do to battle lust and illicit sexual desire, whether you're single or married? In this context, just as we talk about relationships, here's a practical way to pluck out your eye. Practical way to pluck out your eye. A practical way to be intentional in the way that you pursue relational intimacy over sexual chemistry. Here's how. Back in 1967, there was a psychologist named Arthur Aaron. And after falling in love with his wife, they both were psychologists and they fell in love. And they, uh, he was so crazy about his wife and they, they had this great marriage. And as a psychologist, he knew he was trying to figure out what his research subject was going to be. And as often the case, he had said that uh, many folks would always say, find a topic, find a subject and just go for it. And he realized there really hadn't been many studies done on intimacy and closeness between people. Like he had never really seen psychological studies done. We can have anecdotal stories. My grandmother was together with my, with my grandfather for 55 years. And da, 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 da. By the way, chronology is not a test for whether or not it was good. 
There's a lot of people that just stayed because they felt guilty or because it was not uh, financially feasible when they did, but the marriage was horrible. And that's the reason why younger generations don't want marriage. And we say, y'all are just a bunch of crazy, lascivious stuff. They might be that, but also your marriage that you stayed in because you were just unhappy, but you stayed for the wrong reason, they don't want any part of it now. So how do we ensure, if I've been married 50 years, that it's still rooted in relational intimacy and not just patting myself on the back for staying on the ship that's dying? Here's how. They said, that, they said that when they started doing the research and they started spending time trying to figure out what it is that makes people go beyond the transactional and begin to engage genuine relational intimacy. So they did this research on love and relational intimacy between couples. They spent their life's research studying something called the closeness generating procedure. And what goes on with closeness? How does it affect hormones? How does it affect the brain? How does it affect behavior? 30 years later, 1997, they published the results of the study, and it became known as something that is very famous, known as the 36 questions that lead to love. Now, it might sound like, okay, this just sounds like another silly internet kind of, you know, thing that you do that it just, it can make you say whatever you want. No, this is very intentional. And here's what we know. Over time, the amount of people that would engage in this study, it is overwhelming how many people ended up getting married. It wasn't even about whether or not you were my soulmate or whether or not you were just the right type for me. There was something about these questions that made people be so fully open and known that it drew them together and created real intimacy. Some of the questions, uh, they, go, they, they, start, they don't start with heavy questions first because they found that if you start heavy, it's a good thing for y'all dating. If you start heavy, it's going to be a no-no. Don't start trauma dumping right out the gate. <laughs> You've been lonely a long time. I get it. Don't start leading with like the issue that happened at seven years old and showing them the battle scar. Don't do that. And they knew that. So they started with some very lightweight questions first, just to keep the ball rolling and make it uh, really uh, comfortable. And so here's one of the questions they ask in the first set of the 36. Before making a a telephone call, do you ever rehearse what you say and why? Just pretty basic, but but good. Because what it does is it's light enough, but it starts to reveal the fullness of who you are in this area, right? Who am I? If if I'm I'm interested in you, I want to be interested in you. I want to be interested in like, who you are, not just when you're here at the table. I want to know who you fully are in these other areas. Then if you look at one of the last questions that they ask, this is how it leads you, one of the last questions they ask. If you were to die this evening with no opportunity to communicate with anyone, what would you most regret not having told someone and why haven't you told them yet? If you're engaging in this study, what they make you do, you have to stay there and answer every one of these 36 questions. But get this, after you're done, you have to stare at each other in the eyes for four straight minutes. Yeah, I know. For a lot of us that are like, a lot of us, it's like too much eye contact is just crazy. And I just start making excuses to look away. No. And it's interesting what they found as a study. So the first few people that they did this on, I mean, they did these 36 questions. They used it on strangers. And, 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 and uh, not only did they generate closeness between these strangers, but a large majority of them ended up getting married, falling in love, and uh, back in, going all the way back into the 90s. The first couple they tested the questions on were lab researchers that worked in their lab, but not on the same project. So they honestly didn't even know why these questions were being asked. They just brought the two of them together, had them sit, and work through the questions, and then made them sit and be staring at each other like crazy people for four minutes. And then after that, the couple ended up getting married and invited the whole lab to the wedding and are still married to this day. 2015, a journalist tried to recreate this experiment, right? Because now it's been 30 some odd years, 35 years almost. And what they, uh, what they found, they went through the 36 questions. It was a journalist and she brought her friend, a male journalist together. And they went through this same thing. They tried to recreate the experiment. They went through the 36 questions. They stared into each other's eyes. They didn't leave for four minutes. Guess what happened? She married that man. The name of it, you can look it up if you want. It's called To Fall In Love With Anyone, Do This. Now, here's why I'm bringing this up. This isn't just to like bring up some pop culture psychology to go, hey, let's add some Jesus to it. The point really is there is something about the way we're wired. There's a reason why it works that way. There's a reason why we work that way. 
Because relational intimacy is something hard-coded in us. This, isn't, uh, this shouldn't even be a novel thing for believers. We should understand this. The God that created us to be known, we shouldn't be shocked when people fall in love when they're known. This is relational life. This is relational living. And so when you look at what, what happened here, it, you think about why this experiment seems to work. Here's why. Because it gives you the experience of being seen, of deeply known, disclosing the most vulnerable things about you. And guess what? They can't look away. They don't look away in disgust. They don't flee. They don't leave you. Someone knows you and doesn't leave you? That taps into the most fundamental human aspect we have. We have a deep desire to be loved and known at the same time. And what happens with sex is sex offers the same thing. It points beyond itself to something else, the possibility of being fully known and fully seen at the same time. It is the perfect embodiment of being known. You're completely exposed. Nothing can be hidden. And to not be rejected, someone doesn't run away. They delight in you. They adore you. I see everything about you. I'm not leaving. That is a knowing. That is a a deep desire. That is a deep relational love. So, So longing for sex many times has less to do with our hormones and more to do with our heart. We crave this experience. This is why G.K. Chesterton, who basically was C.S. Lewis before C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He said, it's going to sound really crazy when I say this, but there's a point to it. He said, every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Just let that sit. It's such a provocative statement, right? Because you're like, a lot of people can make another, take that in a different direction. But when you really think about what he's getting at, when people are in unhealthy ways, just searching and searching and running around and jumping in relationship to relationship, some people are um, uh, kind of intimacy addicts because they're searching for that right person. But many times you're searching to be more fully known than you ever have. And it's not even possible with any human being. So what happens is you get to a place where I am looking to be fully fulfilled and I need somebody to do that. The problem is you go here, 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 and no one can do that because they're not built for that. God is. You weren't built for that. You were built for him first. And then in that fulfilling uh, fulfillment, now you can engage with others in the same way. There's something we're longing for, being known. And we misplace it, we misdirect it, we miscategorize it. And you know what happens? Lust robs us of it. It robs us of it. And ultimately, we were made to be fully known in every possible way, intellectually, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Think about the way that God relates to us. And I'll close. He, God fully knows you, and he does not leave. We are fully exposed to him, and he does not run. He stays there, loving us. God sees our sexual failures, our shame, our fantasies, our addictions, our secret lives. He sees how we've sinned against others. He's seen how people have sinned against us. And you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't run away in disgust. He moves towards you in love and in grace in the person of Jesus. How many of y'all know Jesus didn't come to you because you were so attractive? I might be a shock, some of y'all. <laughs> Jesus didn't come and come before you and come pursue you because of how attractive you were. He didn't pursue us because we had chemistry. He sees us betraying him. He sees us abandoning him. And yet in this great act of deep committed love on the cross, Jesus decided to stay. He stayed on that cross saying, I see you and I'm not leaving. He was the one that was mutilated and murdered. Why? Because he delights in you. And he wants you to know that you're utterly loved. That you are known. That you are delighted in. So all of our relationships should be reflective of that deep longing. This means that in Christ, you are not defined 
by your sexual stories, your sexual failures, or your sexual desires. You are someone that is fully known and fully loved at the same time. And that should be good news. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, you know us. You know us intimately. You know the the, the darkness of our hearts. You know the joys of our hearts. You know that we are prone to, to hide. You know that we hide from ourselves. You know that we hide from others. God, you, you see all of us. You gave yourself to make us your own. God, you are the faithful one. You were determined to pursue us. You were determined to overwhelm us with your love. And so, God, I pray that we will walk away today acknowledging and even desiring to be fully known by you and let that desire, that kind of good desire, rule the ways in which we engage our relationships. God, for those of us that are married, I pray that that is something we can engage in our marriage, that we would look at what it means to be fully and intimately known. God, I pray that the ways in which we are prone to hide and pretend, God, will you break us of that? God, if we're single, I pray that we would have whatever it looks like to, to, to follow these, the, uh, a way of behaving and a way of thinking and a way of functioning that says, I deeply, I desperately want real relational intimacy. If we are in situations where that's not possible, give us the strength to walk away. Father, I pray that we would acknowledge that not just the behaviors are important, but that the, the very heart postures that enable those behaviors be evaluated. Lord, let us be a people that deeply investigates our heart, not so that we can brag about being good PIs, but Lord, so that we can bring nothing but glory in our lives. We pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.